And I think this is something most of us probably think about, right? But I think saying it and really trying to emphasize it to our clients and athletes is two different things. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we are going to be talking about 13 practical programming and coaching tips. Now, I've got these outlined. I'm fired up. I think this is going to be an awesome show, hopefully super relevant, because look, I don't know how many program design articles, podcasts, videos I've created over the years. Program design and coaching are still the two things that I get the most questions about. So even though I've created a ton of content on this topic, I think the stuff that we're gonna talk about today is gonna be relevant, it's gonna be practical, and ultimately I hope it's gonna help you write better programs. So with the holidays around, I'm sure you're in a time crunch. We're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna jump into this awesome episode about programming and coaching. It seems like every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if that sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and who know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. And the exact progressions regressions and coaching cues I use in the gym, from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the cert is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will only open twice per year for a limited time only. To get on the insider's list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for emails in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. Okay, my friends, so without any further ado, let's jump right in. Practical programming and coaching tip. Number one, make all your variables congruent. Now, when you're a young coach, this can seem overwhelming because you've got so many variables that you can play around with. You've got the exercise selection. You've got time under tension. You've got your sets. You've got your reps. You've got your intensity you're working at, your rest period. So while it can be overwhelming, the most important thing you can do is be really clear on what kind of outcome you're looking for, what kind of adaptation you're chasing. So if you've ever heard of a guy named Ian King, he was very influential to me early in my career. And he had what he described as the neural metabolic continuum. So on the left-hand side, if you imagine this is just one big spectrum, you have the neural end or the nervous system focused activity. So this would be speed. This would be strength. This would be power development. So if you're going to train on that side of the continuum, there's a couple boxes you have to check. Generally, you're not going to have a ton of reps per set, right? You're not doing sets of 10 if you're doing max lifts. Uh, You're going to need a lot of rest in between sets. The nervous system takes time to recover. Your overall volume is generally going to be pretty low. Okay, so if you're chasing an adaptation like that, if you want to be a power lifter, you have to train like a power. You have to lift heavy things at a high intensity, generally not a ton of total volume, and you have to take a lot of rest in between sets. Okay, and if you don't adhere to those, At some point, it's going to catch up to you. If you're a newbie and you're maxing out and you're doing singles on the minute, you know, that might work for a little while. But as your training age goes up, as your intensity or your ability to create intensity goes up, you're going to have to take more rest in between. Now, on the other side of that spectrum, 
we have the metabolic end. So this would be where we're trying to chase either fat loss or perhaps hypertrophy. So if you're gonna be in that area of the spectrum or on that end of the spectrum, you need higher total volume, higher reps per set. In general, the intensity is gonna be lower. And in most cases, you're gonna be working on incomplete rest. So now think about this end of the spectrum and think about where people go wrong here. We've all seen the guy that's either trying to add some muscle or maybe lean out. And every time he's on a rest break at the gym, he's either swiping through Instagram, TikTok, trying to hit on the girl on the treadmill. All of a sudden, what should be 60 seconds rest has come become five or 10 minutes, okay? So again, this is where all your variables have to be congruent. If you're chasing a neural adaptation, there's certain things you have to do. If you're chasing a metabolic adaptation, there are certain things you have to do, but you gotta make all your variables congruent when you write the program as well as when you execute it. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, deep thought for you today. Do you really need traditional resets? Now, this is something that I have talked about in numerous ways, almost as long as I've been in the industry. So in 2004, 2005, we were calling them corrective exercises. Now we use the term resets. Uh, I don't really care how you describe it. It's the thought process that's important. And I use the term traditional resets specifically because most people think of a reset as a static position where you're generally focused on breathing. And your goal here is, in general, to reacquire some range of motion, okay? So let's say you struggle with shoulder external rotation. Maybe you're gonna do some activities uh, that promote airflow into the backside of the body, that dorsal rostral area, as Bill calls it. Or if you're lacking shoulder internal rotation, you're trying to fill up a chest wall. So I want you to think about this because I think too often we get so caught up in, well, a reset is this static, breathing activity, and maybe it is, but maybe your reset doesn't have to be that, okay? So one of the things that I've been doing a lot when I do my complete coach seminars is what I call my ground prep series. And I know I've talked about this a lot on the podcast and my articles, my newsletters, but I think it's just such a wonderful tool. I originally started using it as a bridge between my resets and my more dynamic warm-up. But what the ground prep series does is basically helps us learn how to create space on the backside of our body, right? And when we can shift back, then that allows us to rotate, which is what many, many of us lack. So maybe you can just do simple stuff like that ground prep series and see an awesome change in your movement. Time and again, when I'm warming these groups up at my seminars, you know, we get them moving a little bit. We have them do something up top, like a squat or a toe touch, just get a feel for how they're moving. Then we have them go through the ground prep series and then we have them retest. And immediately they're like, oh my gosh, that feels amazing. So maybe you don't have to do those traditional static breathing activities as a reset. Maybe you can do a ground prep series. You know, maybe you can just do some crawling patterns. I know the guys at Original Strength use that sort of uh, reset in their, their warm-up. So what I want you to think about is this. Challenge everything, right? There is a time and a place. If you've got somebody that's really locked up, doesn't move particularly well, uh, maybe they're in more of a rehab-type setting versus a training environment. Hey, those people probably need static, traditional resets, and that's fine. But as you're progressing, do you need to stay static? Can you do more dynamic activities that look and feel more like training that gets you a similar, if not even perhaps a better result? So something to think about. But number two, do you really need traditional resets? Maybe, but maybe not. Number three, thinking about warmups, should you be doing more ground-based or movement-based warmups? And this is actually a question I've gotten numerous times here in the past couple months because people are really confused. I don't understand why. Uh, I think sometimes the internet and social media makes it so convoluted. Uh, we get so focused on nuance that we miss kind of the big picture. But hey man, there are people that would probably benefit a lot from ground-based warmups. 
And some of the benefits you, you get from being in that ground-based environment, it's safe, uh, it's controlled, the influence of gravity is decreased. So for a lot of my beat-up people that I'm working with, we're going to do a lot of that ground prep or that ground-based movement stuff first. For some of your older populations, where balance or coordination is an issue, maybe we need to do some stuff ground-based first right? Start to build them literally from the ground back up to where they can better manage gravity. For some of your, I don't want to say beat up clients in, uh, you know, like the older sense, but some of your clients that have just been through the ringer training wise, right? They don't move particularly well, or they think they move well and they really don't. For some of those people, that's where some of these ground-based warmups, and again, that ground prep series could work really, really well. Now, On the flip side of that, I think there's absolutely a time and a place and a demographic that's going to thrive doing more movement-based warm-ups. So for example, with my speed camps that I'm running now, a lot of these kids need to focus on dialing in their movement. They need to work on balance and coordination. I think one of the most enlightening things for me running these camps was the fact that kids can be pretty darn good at their sport because I got some decent athletes as far as their respective sport, whether it's soccer, baseball, football. But man, a lot of these kids lack general movement skills. They lack rhythm. They lack coordination. I was shocked how many kids could not contralateral skip, right? Just your standard skip. Right arm comes up, left knee comes up. Can't do it. They were literally left arm, left knee, or right arm, right knee. So we had to take a massive amount of time early on in these camps just building their coordination and their rhythm, okay? So these types of of groups and demographics will thrive doing more movement-based warm-ups. And again, now it's not just about mobility because perhaps they do need some of that, especially if they're growing, you know, they're like a collection of body parts when they're like 10 to 16, 17 years old. So they need some mobility, but they also need the balance, they need the coordination. They need the rhythm that a more movement-based warm-up can give them. So I can't answer that one for you, but it's something to think about. When you're training a specific client or athlete, should you focus more on a ground-based warm-up or a movement-based warm-up? And again, you're the one that's going to have to answer that, but I want you to think about that as you're writing these warm-ups for your clients. Okay? Number four, I think this is a really important one to hear. And it's really hard because when you understand how to write a program, you think now you are immediately the best person to write your own program. And that's just not the case. So number four, I want you to remember this. It's always, always easier to write a program for someone else versus yourself. And I see this all the time with young coaches that are really starting to dive into the world of program design. I've seen it with interns. I've seen it with young coaches that have interned with us and then started writing programs. Man, it's so much easier to be objective and to write a really sound and well-thought-out program for somebody else than it is for yourself. Because, look, it's very easy to be objective about somebody else. You know clearly what their goals are, what their movement limitations are, Uh, You remove the bias of exercise selection because let's be honest, all of us that have done this for any extended period of time have certain things we love to do and certain things we hate to do. So when you're writing your own program and you need to do fat loss or, you know, whatever your end goal is, if you're chasing fat loss and you know you need to do high volumes or high reps, but you hate doing anything over sets of five, it's going to be really hard for you to write that program because you don't want to do that stuff. You don't like it. So that's where you need the objectivity of another coach to help facilitate that. And keep in mind, like I am a thousand percent on board with this myself. And I've talked about this for probably the last 10 years. The most successful periods of time that I've had as an athlete, right? An older athlete now, but as an athlete, have been when I've had somebody else writing my programs. And it's been a very select group. I think I've only let four people in like 20 years write my programs. 
I'll name them for you just in case you're interested. Bill Hartman, right? Obviously, guy knows a thing or two about training. Mike Tusher, when I was competing in powerlifting, got me really, really strong in a pretty short period of time. Uh, Eric Otter, who I just think the world of, uh, medical director now for the Memphis Grizzlies, and then Mike Camperini. And each one of those guys had a little bit different viewpoint on training, on program design. But the cool thing about it was it wasn't just going through the program. It was really trying to dive in and understand their thought process. And I think this is something that we can all learn from is taking somebody else's program and not just immediately like, oh, yeah, that's trash or that's garbage, but really diving in and trying to understand what are they trying to accomplish? What are their goals? And I think when you dive in and you really start to try and unpack what somebody is doing in their programming, man, even if you don't love what they're doing, it helps you better understand the process as a whole. Okay? So I would behoove you. If you are trying to write your own programs, please stop. (laughs) Please try and find somebody else that's objective to help you do this. But if you are going to try and do it on your own, at least have somebody else that you trust to help audit you, to be objective. Maybe they're going to come in and they're going to do the assessment, right? So it's not you, oh, I don't think I have right hip IR. No, this person can legitimately tell you, you do or do not have right hip IR. So they're going to tell you, you know, where you're at from an objective perspective, and then hopefully help guide you during the process. Because again, it's really easy to just fall back into your favorite set rep schemes, your favorite exercises. When, if you're really trying to move the needle, a lot of times it's getting away from the stuff that you're good at. Which actually brings me to my next point. Number five, do the things that you or they suck at. Now, nobody likes to hear this. And one of the ways that I tend to break the ice with new clients or new athletes that come into my gym because it can be awkward, right? Like we do things a lot different at iFast. And so one of the things that I'll try to convey to them is like, hey, look, you know that assessment? Like one of the things we did there was try to find all the things that you suck at so we can make you you suck at them less going forward. So, you know, let's be honest here. If you're strong, if you're a power lifter, It's easy for you to lift heavy things. Uh, On the flip side, if you're super fit, you're this cardio master, you do ultra endurance, you do marathons, whatever, it's easy to go out and crush cardio. So let's be objective here. Let's find that low-hanging fruit. What do you suck at or what do they suck at? What do you not like to program for yourself? Or what do they not like to do? You got to try and win them over and explain the value and the role of this stuff. But I think when you start with this, it's such low hanging fruit, right? Like you take the power lifter, you give them any cardio, immediately they move and feel better. You take the cardio person that's never done anything in the weight room, you give them two days a week of foundational functional strength training and immediately they move better, they feel better and their performance improves. Okay. Now, this is something that Joel Jameson has talked about too. And, you know, obviously I'm biased from like the strength side of things because that's more where I came up. Uh, I mean, hell, even like my dad, right? My dad was a hammer thrower in college. So like the fast twitch explosive stuff is kind of in my DNA. But I mean, Joel talks about this all the time. Like, hey, find those things that you suck at. Find that low hanging fruit, bring it up even a little bit and you're going to feel better. Another way I like to think about it is your rate limiters, okay? So I used to talk about this, but specifically in the context of baseball. Now, if you want baseball training advice, go to Eric Cressy. He's the man there. But one of the things that I used to do with my baseball players was give them some aerobic development in their programs. Now, this was foreign to a lot of these guys because we're talking, you know, some guys that are, uh, you know, high-level collegiate players uh, minor league baseball, like they're shocked. They're like, why are we doing conditioning? Like we just lift and we go home. And I tried to explain to them, Hey, look, if we do even a little bit of aerobic development, number one, you're going to feel better. 
Number two, you're going to recover faster. Number three, you're in a skill-based sport. So whether it's practicing your pitching, practicing your hitting, getting in the cage, getting a lot of cuts, if you can recover better in between sessions, in between days, you're going to be able to get more skill development in. And hey, look, if you can get 500 cuts in without fatiguing and somebody else can only do 200 or 250, now you have a competitive advantage, right? And that was just chasing the skill development side. We weren't even talking about just on a macro level, hey man, you're going to sleep better, you're going to recover faster so you can do more work in the gym. So to kind of come full circle on this, come in the gym and do the things that you struggle with. It's hard, right? Nobody likes it. But the great thing about this kind of stuff is too, since it's such a low hanging fruit, if you do even a little bit of work on the things that you suck at, you're gonna see a very quick return on investment. People that have never done cardio, they do cardio for two, three, four weeks and they feel an immediate difference. Your people that are strength training may take a little bit longer, maybe it's four to six weeks, but you give the cardio bunny a little bit of strength development and immediately they're seeing improvements in their performance. So that's number five. Focus on and work on the things that they suck at. Number six, speaking of Eric Cressy, he put out such a great Instagram post. Actually, it was a Twitter post that turned into an Instagram post. But he basically said this, elite athletes do not equal elite lifters. And I think that's so profound It's something I've subscribed to for years, but Eric has this way of making things very succinct, very direct, very clear. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen this uh, and how many times it's just been kind of reaffirmed because I've gotten to work with elite athletes from almost every sport at this point, right? Professional baseball, professional basketball, professional soccer, professional football. And we're talking like, high-level athletes in all of those sports. And I can tell you almost universally, just because somebody is great on a field, court, or pitch doesn't necessarily mean they move well when they're in a weight room. It's just fact, right? And I think it's the most profound in basketball because a lot of these guys have been disinclined to be in a weight room, um, A lot of times their physiques kind of almost go against it. But I think that's what's really important, right? And this is something that's important to note. A lot of times what can make an athlete great in their respective sport is actually a detriment to them being great in a weight room. And it's funny, now we can look back and think about this. But think about when Kevin Durant came out and he did the the NBA Combine. If you're unfamiliar with the NBA Combine, one of the tests is a 185-pound bench press, okay? Now, most of you listening, if you're a male, you've probably benched 185. And if you haven't, that's okay. But a lot of us have, right, at some point in our career. And for a lot of us, that's not a lot, right? Not a lot of guys would be like bragging about a 185 bench press. So in a lot of our minds, Kevin Durant goes in, he can't bench press 185. Now everybody's up in arms. And it was, it was comical now to think about this because all the strength coaches are like, oh my God, he's so weak. He's never going to perform. He's going to be awful. Yo, I think Kevin Durant's been okay. And if he could still not bench 185, I don't think one coach on the planet cares because that guy is a walking bucket. Okay? So Kevin Durant's seven foot. They call him Durantula because his arms and his legs are so long. All those things that make him great at basketball are a detriment to him in the weight room, okay? So think about not just anthropometrics, but also stiff ankles, right? Stiff hips. Sometimes these things that are really beneficial if you're trying to plant, be quick, change direction, accelerate quickly, don't allow you to squat super deep, to go through the fullest range of motion. So this is just something I want you to think about. Okay, because I know a lot of people listening to this show either work with high level athletes or they aspire to work with high level athletes. So just remember, just because somebody is great on a field quarter pitch doesn't mean they're going to be the best mover in the gym. It doesn't mean they're going to be the strongest when they come in your gym. Now, here's one other thing, and I don't want to get too tangential with this point, but I think this is really, really important. 
A lot of times people assume that because somebody's not strong in a weight room, that they aren't a fast or explosive human being. And this is where you have to take this out. This is one of the reasons I got behind the force plates and that sort of thing, because what I want to be able to tease out is what kind of physical outputs does an athlete have irrespective of technique? So think about this. If I took you in the gym and you've never back squatted before, even if you are like the strongest human being on the planet, you're probably not going to back squat all that much because there's technique involved, right? Now, imagine somebody trains like a power lifter for 20 years. Their technique's going to be totally different. And if you have that person back squat, it's going to look very effortless. So when you're assessing your athletes, I want you to think about how can I test or evaluate their outputs irrespective of technique. That's why jump tests work great. Almost everybody knows how to jump. Uh, That's why the research loves isometric mid-thigh pulls or iso squats because all you have to do is stand there and push really hard. There's no technique involved. And I guarantee you, your elite athletes may not have the best technique in, say, a trap bar or in a squat. But man, you put them in a jump test or you put them in something like an isometric mid-thigh pull where they don't have to focus on technique and they can just show you and demonstrate their outputs, dude, they got juice. So I think this is really, really important. Remember, elite athletes do not equal elite lifters. You're probably going to have to scale back the exercises, the activities. You want to build some movement while simultaneously maintaining the outputs that help make them great, okay? So that's number six. Elite athletes do not equal elite lifters. Number seven, this is gonna ruffle some feathers, but I'm gonna say it anyways. Please, 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 stop trying to balance your presses and pulls, your squats and hinges, etc. Now, I thought we'd put this to bed five-ish years ago, maybe more, but man, I'm still getting questions about this. And... I'm going to give you a practical example. I think this was probably like 2010. I was working with the guys at Elite FTS, some of the strongest human beings on the planet. And Dave asked me to come over. He says, hey, we're going to do an underground strength session, Um, like no visitors from the public. It's just dudes in here getting strong, testing the equipment. Will you come evaluate some of the guys? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're talking like Brian Schwab. I don't know what weight class he was, like 148, 165. Five or 600 pound bench, Joe Jordan, I don't remember what he was, 230, 240, he was benching 600. I mean, we're talking just freakishly strong human beings. And all these guys across the board are like, yo, for whatever I bench, I'm doing two times, if not three times as many pulls, right? Because we were locked in on this mindset of, hey, look, if you're going to press, you got to be able to pull, you got to bounce. And yet, When I'm evaluating these guys, universally, they have little to no rotation. Now, part of that is is just powerlifting as a whole, right? The more rotation you have, the more freedom of movement you have, the less successful you're going to be, right? Like a lack of rotation is actually helpful. The only rotation you need in powerlifting is to be able to hit a specific point or a certain depth and come out of it. That's it. Like you don't need to have world-class range of motion to be a world-class powerlifter. But what these guys had basically done was create, created a human bench press shirt, right? The pressing compresses the front, the rowing compresses the back, so it basically squishes you front to back. So it's like they're walking around in a bench shirt 24-7. So one of the things that Bill Hartman and I talked about, I, and I went and looked, I think this article was released in 2007. It's called Push-Ups, Face Pulls, and Shrugs. But one of the things you have to recognize is that, man, you got to have freedom of movement in all these different planes of motion. Don't let Bill hear that I said that because there's only one plane, according to him. (laughs) But regardless, hey, man, you got to be able to protract a scapula. You got to be able to retract a scapula. You got to be able to internally rotate a hip and externally rotate a hip. That's You know, one of the things that he talks about in his model is this ability to create space, right? You can't move into compression. So if you are squished front to back, 
when you squish the front side, right, you squish those chest walls and you contract those pecs, you lose internal rotation. The more you row and pin those shoulder blades back and or down, the less external rotation you have. So if you want to recapture that, well, you can't just press and pull your way into more range of motion, right? And so what I want you to think about, instead of trying to create this mythical structural balance, first and foremost, get clear on what is the goal. And I probably should have made this point zero. I've talked about this in every program design podcast, but first and foremost, you have to get clear on what the goal is. So if your goal is force production, like if you wanna be a world-class power lifter, range of motion be damned, listen, press and pull your way into oblivion. It will work. You will get stronger. There's a reason bodybuilders do this because it helps build big muscles. There's a reason power lifters do this because it flattens them out. It creates compression on both sides and compression equals force production. But, but if you're that person that's tired of moving like a human bench shirt or feeling like you're wearing a bench shirt 24 seven, if you're tired of your shoulders aching all the time, then you need to get clear on, hey, instead of trying to create muscle balance by just creating more muscle activity and more compression, maybe I need to be focused on restoring range of motion. So this is where, hey, those breathing activities may come into play. Maybe you're gonna have to start doing more offset or more asymmetrical activities. Because again, for building muscles, those bilateral symmetrical activities like bench presses, like chest supported rows, fantastic because they squeeze and compress you. But if you're trying to recapture motion, maybe create some rotation, now, hey, maybe we need more of those asymmetrical offset activities. And that's why I talk about the cobra lat pulldowns, half kneeling lat pulldowns, short seated lat pulldowns, because you're trying to get that body to bend and flex and rotate in ways that it's not used to or that maybe hasn't done in quite some time. So get clear on what are you trying to do. If you're trying to to move better, feel better, it's not about structural balance in the old sense of balancing presses and pulls and all those great things. It's about creating expansion and then using activities to further drive that expansion to recapture rotation so that ultimately you move and feel better. So that's number seven. Stop, please stop trying to balance presses and pulls. It's not going to work. Number eight, work to balance the workload across your week. And looking at people's workouts, mentoring people, just working with people for a long enough period of time, one of the things that I see a lot are people that are basically trying to make up for the weekend on Monday and Tuesday. So maybe they had a little bit too much fun Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now Monday's here. Yo, I got to make up for all of that today. So they're in the gym. They just want to smash themselves, right? They're just going so hard. They're in the gym 75, 90, two hours, right? Like they're in the gym way too long. Well, now they just crush themselves so hard on Monday, it takes them till Thursday to recover. So Thursday, they might come in and do a little bit. Next thing you know, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday again. They're just really jacking themselves up, right? So one of the things that I try and and espouse to my clients, my athletes, is trying to make the workload tolerable across the entire week. And I think this is something most of us probably think about, right? But I think saying it and really trying to emphasize it to our clients and athletes is two different things. So I talked about this in this off-season basketball uh, programming video I I released here lately. But man, when you're setting up a workout, if you're just blasting somebody on Monday, you're not going to get the best out of them the rest of the week. So that's not to say you can't go hard Monday, but just understand, hey, I'm going to kind of rein it in Monday, control Monday, so that Wednesday we can have a pretty good session, and then I know Friday I can have probably another pretty strong session. Probably not going to be as great as Monday because there's just fatigue buildup over the course of the work week or the school week, but spreading out that volume and that intensity over the week tends to be managed and tolerated so much better. And again, 
talking about Joel and some of the stuff that he's doing with Morpheus, I mean, I don't get paid anything to say this. I just think it's really cool in the sense that when you're tracking things like your resting heart rate, when you're testing and tracking your HRV, man, you can literally tell on each and any day how ready you are to train. Another tool in the toolbox here is if you're chasing more performance-based numbers, a gym aware. Because a gym aware is not going to lie. It's objective and it's going to tell you how fast you're moving that bar. So I think it's really important to have objective metrics and measures to figure out, okay, this is where I'm at today. And then you can meet the training demands based on your readiness. So I think it's really important. Work to balance the workload across the week. Don't try and smash people on Monday. Now, kind of as a corollary to this or on the back end, just keep in mind, hey, look, like some of my clients and athletes, because of their work schedule, their routines, the way things work, I may only get them Monday and Tuesday. I may only get them early in the week. So as a corollary to this, number nine, look, something's better than nothing. Because I have so many people that come to me and they're like, yo, Mike, I'd love to get with you three, four, five days a week. But because of this, that, or the other, I can only do once or I can only do twice. And so they're like defeated before they ever come in or they just don't come in at all. And that's so frustrating. I always try and explain to people, hey, look, man, I'll take whatever you can give me. So if I only get you Monday or if I only get you Monday, Tuesday this week, we'll figure out a way to get it done. You know, maybe we can't do two total bodies back to back. Maybe we do a more lower body focused session on Monday, a little bit more upper body focused session on Tuesday. And then, hey man, when you're gone, if you can do anything on your own, maybe I could write them a hotel workout or some body weight stuff they can do on their own. You find ways to fill in those gaps. But always try and remind your clients when you're writing programs, look, the more I can get you in, the better. Obviously, if I can see you five times a week, that's better than one. But if I only get you one, we can still make an impact. I can still help you move the needle. So that's number nine. Something is better than nothing. Getting people in the gym and working with you on a regular and consistent basis, even if it's only once a week, can make a big impact on how they move and feel. Number 10, strengthen muscles and load movements. Man, I love this. This came from Mike Reinhold. I would love to take credit for it. But Mike actually said this in a podcast that we did. We were talking about blood flow restriction training. And I think if you've been listening to the show or you've been following my progression and evolution over the last couple of years, you'll know, hey man, I'm pretty direct about it. I use more isolation work now than I did in the past. And part of that is the bias of The clients and athletes that I get, specifically the athletes, a lot of my basketball guys come in and they've got stuff coming off the season. If a guy just played 90 to 100 NBA games, he's probably not feeling 100% in April or May. And chances are, when I evaluate him, it's going to show up. Maybe he's going to have some quad weakness. Maybe he's going to have some soleus weakness. These are We know these are two really important areas for basketball players. So... I think I'm just at a point now where I recognize or respect the role of isolation work, especially early in a program, and I'm willing to put it in, right? I would love to just be able to squat and hinge and lunge and press and pull and do all those big bang compound activities, but not everybody's ready for that. And so we have to respect that. And I think especially if you're working with people that are dealing with stuff, okay? So I mentioned basketball players. But look, how many of the clients that you get in, let's just say you train gin pop people. How many of the people that you have walking your door are 100% healthy on day one? Like clean bill of health. Probably not many, right? They probably have some significant limitations in their range of motion. They probably have joint related issues that they've been either working around or working through, right? I can't tell you how many times I've I've done a consult with an online person and they're like, oh no, I, I'm great, no limitations. And then we get on an actual Zoom call and they're like, oh yeah, but sometimes when I lunge, my back knee hurts or sometimes when I squat, my right knee hurts. Like, okay, that's fine. We need to be able to find these things. We need to be able to find these asymmetries. And again, coming back to kind of this idea of 
a really complete assessment process, for me, the like multi-tiered assessment is really important. So if you're unfamiliar with ours, I'll give you a very brief synopsis. Uh, I talk about this in the cert and at the seminars, but we do a range of motion assessment, right? So I'm gonna look at at least hips and knees, IRs, ER, sorry, hips and shoulders, IRs, ERs, what do we got? What do we not got? We're gonna watch those basic movements, right? I'm gonna watch them squat, hinge, lunge or split squat, uh, do a push-up, because I wanna get an idea of just functional movements. How do they look? How do they feel? But then for me, this is why I got the force plates, right? And and there's other cool toys that I'd like to get to do more isolative testing that are well beyond my budget right now. But I wanna have more objective data. So I can look at somebody and if my KPI is, hey, I'm gonna measure your quads with a tape measure, that's fine. You know, maybe that's valuable. But I want to be able to say, hey, look, in this isometric mid-thigh pull, you're pushing 20% harder with your right leg versus your left. Or when you jump or when you land, you're putting 30% more load through your left leg versus your right. Like, that's really cool objective data to share with somebody because maybe it's something they sense or they feel but they can't explain. Now you have something objective, whether it's a range of motion measure whether it's a force production measure or a loading measure, whatever it may be, you can very clearly show them, hey, look, these are the asymmetries that I found. My goal is not to make you symmetrical. This is an important discussion. Nobody is symmetrical. You never will be. That's okay. But my goal is to identify your asymmetries and then help you manage them better. Like that's a really key point. So when you're using this really wide or broad-ranging assessment process, your goal is to identify some of these asymmetries and then manage them more effectively. So that's where this idea of strengthening muscles and loading movements is so brilliant. Okay, Find the asymmetries, work to alleviate them, reduce them so they are managed better, and then, hey, then by all means, get in the gym, squat, hinge, lunge, do all those things that we all know are beneficial to our clients and athletes, but help them manage those asymmetries first. Number 11, speed training is speed training. More importantly, speed training is speed training. It's not conditioning. So back to speed camp. I've been running these for like six, seven weeks now. Now, granted, I've coached speed for more than a decade. Uh, I'd like to think I know a few things about it. I'm not world-class by any stretch of the imagination, but standing on the shoulders of giants like Lee Taft, Nick Winkleman, uh, you know, these Derek Hansen, these great coaches, Boo Shexnader, another one uh, that I've learned a ton from. Like I've learned a lot from these guys, but watching in speed camp, so many of these kids want to just do the next thing as fast as possible right? They will do a class or they'll do a sprint and then they're like sprinting back to get back in line. So one of the things that I've really tried to do is help them understand intent. So most kids just think if they're tired, right, that it's effective. Or I'll come back to this in a minute because I've been watching another speed camp, but I'll come back to that. Most kids assume that if they're tired, that it's beneficial, or that fatigue equals getting better. And that's just not the case, especially with speed, right? We talked about this up top. If you're going to write a speed-focused program, you need high intensity and you need long rest. So one of the things that I've tried to do with these kids is, hey, we're going to do this five-yard acceleration, and then you're going to coast all the way to the wall. I'm going to make you touch this wall that's like 20 yards down, right? Just jog down there, touch the wall, and then I want you to walk back. So we're trying to create, even though they're moving, we're trying to create the rest periods that they want to get maximum impact from their speed development. So I think this is really important because even if you write this in a program, a lot of times people just assume, oh, well, this is just too much rest. They don't like standing around, you know, they're bored, they want to get through the workout faster. No, You have to help them understand the intent. So if you're going to run fast, if you want to move the needle with your speed training, 
you have to write and adhere to longer rest periods. Now, on the flip side of this, you know me, I don't, li I don't like to bash anybody, but uh, Kendall's been doing this striking camp. And so we go on Friday night, she does her striking camp. And right before that, there's a, a group that's running a speed camp at this same facility. And literally, it's just, it's conditioning. That's all it is. It's, here's all the cones. I'm going to yell, go, go, go. And so these kids, if you're a parent and you know nothing about speed training, you're like, yo, this is the coolest thing ever. Because it's just constant movement. You know, it's all scripted and rehearsed so they can look really fast. Man, real speed training is ugly. Like, at least if you ask me, when you're working with young kids, real speed training is ugly early on. Because they have to figure things out. Games, sports, life is not scripted. It's not rehearsed. They have to figure out how to coordinate movements. They have to figure out how to couple their perception of what's going to happen with an action. So one of the things that, that I think is really important is letting speed training be ugly and just remembering, look, speed training is about speed training. You're not trying to condition them. If they need that, hey, that's great. Do that at some other point in the workout. But if you're trying to help people be fast, run fast, rest long, you're going to get a way better result. Okay, getting in the home stretch here. And I know this is going to go kind of almost exactly opposite what I just said. But number 12, when in doubt, slow it down. Okay, so speed training is speed training, right? If you want to run fast, run fast. Uh, but on the back end of this, one of the things that I've done in these speed camps is I want to teach these kids because, you know, we got anywhere from Cade, who's nine in third grade. Now, granted, he's by far the youngest, but most are like sixth and seventh grade kids. We've had a little bit older. But, man, watching some of these kids just do basic foundational activities, right? Watching them squat, watching them lunge, watching them do a push-up. Man, it's rough. <laughs> it is rough in these streets, my friend. It is not pretty. Now, the scary thing is, without any coaching, some of these kids are going to be in a high school weight room in two years, loading themselves up, power cleaning, back squatting, bench pressing, like that's scary. So one of the things that I tell these kids is, look, I'm going to teach you guys how to do these lifts safely and effectively. And I'm hoping I'm going to get some time with them. I'm going to get some running room. So by the time they do go to high school, they can hinge very well. They can squat very well. They can do things like push-ups. So, you know, when they're in the gym and they're surrounded by their buddies, you know, there's 60 kids and like one or two coaches. If nothing else, my kids are going to be able to take care of themselves and do these things safely and effectively. So coming back to this idea of speed, when somebody struggles with, say, a squat or a split squat, their natural intuition tells them, do this as fast as possible. Get this over with. Okay. So you're watching these kids squat and they're just bang, 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 bang. Like a set of 10 is done in like eight seconds. And I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> like it doesn't look right. It can't feel good. So what I do in a lot of cases, I'll either cue them like one, two, three, come up. One, two, three, come up. So I'll give them some audible cues to help slow them down. If they're still not getting it, I'll get the metronome app on my iPhone out and I'll just have them hear that beep, beep, beep. So they kind of get that rhythm and that cadence because as soon as you slow things down, now things start to clean up, okay? Now, here's what's cool. Maybe they just can't do stuff dynamically. That's okay. Here is a great time to introduce the slowest activity of all, the isometric. So if you're watching somebody and their squat, literally every rep looks different. One, their butt's back. One, their knees are forward. One, their knees are out wide. The next one, their knees are touching each other. Hey man, I just want you to go down. Let's find a really good position. Now I want you to hold this for 10 seconds. It's brilliant. Like, I didn't come up with it, so I can say that, <laughs> you know. It's brilliant because it helps them achieve the right position. They feel the things they need to feel. And then once they get comfortable, now you can take that static and you can make it dynamic. So maybe it's three seconds down, pause, come up. Three seconds down, pause, come up. So they're constantly getting a feel for where they need to finish. But tempo 
is such a great tool for helping move and and feel the things that you need them to feel, okay? Now, what you always have to remember is when you start slowing stuff down, this can really mess with some people's heads, uh, especially if they train for a certain period of time. A lot of people have these preconceived notions as to how strong they are. Hey, man, I have zero preconceived notions. I don't care if you claim to a back squat 405 last week. Uh, when I'm evaluating you today, if you're doing anything below a quarter squat, your real squat strength is at about 225, right? So when you start to slow things down, make people do things the right way, just know and understand like they may not love that initially. And that's where, at least in my experience, what's worked really well is just kind of heading them off at the pass and just saying, hey, look, I have no preconceived notions as to how strong you are, how well you move, whatever. Let's just assume today we're a blank slate. We're trying to figure this out together. And wherever we're at today, we're just going to build forward from here. Okay, so number 12, when in doubt, slow it down, make them own and control the movement. Number 13, and again, this is more of a coaching versus a pure program design tip. But I think one of the things that I'm constantly striving to do is to blend the objective with the subjective. And this is like the great debate. It's still going on on the, net, the, the internets every day, soft versus hard scales. What's more important? And... You know, look, when you're trying to blend the objective with the subjective, I mean, I think you can and should be doing this every day, right? So when somebody comes in the gym, you're trying to evaluate just subjectively. How do they walk in? Are they upright? Are they smiling? Are they energetic and vivacious? Or do they walk in and like their toes are dragging the ground and it takes them 30 minutes to warm up and they won't make eye contact, you know? So... You can do those subjective things with the objective things as well, whatever objective measures you have, okay? But I think we need to constantly strive to evaluate our clients and athletes objectively and subjectively, not just in the day, but, you know, across the training blocks. Are we getting the results and the adaptations that we want? Yeah, we we need to be doing this at the very start. And I'm still shocked at how many people aren't doing some form of an evaluation or assessment. Probably none of you that are listening to this. But hey, man, it really starts with that initial assessment, right? Kind of figure out what kind of creature am I working with? Uh, You know, just subjective measures. What's their personality like? What's their energy level like? Uh, What are some of their physical traits? And then we track and we monitor those over time because... I think anytime you lean too much towards one versus the other, right? If you get too objective and you lack the subjective, or on the flip side, you get too subjective and you lack the objective, you lack balance, right? And and we have to understand we're not training robots. And, and I think what you end up seeing then, and I see this more times than not, when people aren't having the success they would like, whether it's in terms of results, in terms of rapport, When we're working with our clients and our athletes, we tend to overreact in the short term. So somebody doesn't lose a pound their first week in the gym, we're blowing the whole program up, right? So we tend to overreact in the short term, but then on a macro or on a long-term scale, we underreact. We don't do enough to change, okay? So if we're going to balance or blend the objective with the subjective, just remember We're playing a long-term game, but you have to constantly find that balance between the objective side, the subjective side, and how you marry that is totally up to you. Everybody has a different blend, a different ratio. If you're a very like numbers-driven calculating person, you might be 80% objective, and that works for you, and that's great. If you're on the flip side of that, you are just empathetic Eddie, right? You get along with everybody. You like feel other people's emotions. Hey, man, that's great, too. Maybe you're 80% subjective and just a little bit objective. Find the blend that works for you, but just respect the fact. If you are 100% one way or the other, you're not going to get the best possible results. Okay? Now, I know I promised 13. I got one more. And I think this one's really important. So a little bonus tip. Number 14, adaptation is outcome-based not 
time-based. So important, I'm going to repeat it. Adaptation is outcome-based, not time-based. So had a client in the other day, hadn't seen her in a couple years, but she was a long-standing uh, you know, distance client pre-COVID, worked with her for probably five or six years, uh, had some health struggles, and just wasn't where she wanted to be. And now kind of marrying this with program design, a lot of times if somebody is not in the kind of shape they want to be, I have kind of what I call this beginner fat loss program, right? So week one is two sets of eight. Week two, two sets of 10. Week three, three sets of eight. Week four, three sets of 10. So it's this very gentle blend or this very subtle ramping of volume, okay? Because if you have somebody that hasn't trained a lot, two sets of eight, 16 reps of a squat, man, they might be sore after that, right? Imagine if you haven't done a push-up in 20 years and you go in the gym and you do 16 push-ups. It's a lot, right? But here's what most people don't understand. They see that template and they think, well, that's how I have to do it. That's how I have to execute it. And so the discussion I had with this client was like, hey, look, this we're, we're chasing an adaptation here. So it's not based on this pretty four-week training cycle I just wrote you. Maybe we have to do two by eight for two weeks. And the second week you do it, you're not as sore. So now we go to week three, right? And we do weeks three and four. That's two by 10, right? So now five and six three by eight. You see where I'm going with this? We're teasing this out. And I think we see this not, not just in like writing a program for a gen pop client, but this is such an important piece when we're talking rehab and return to play. Because of all the athletes we've had come through our gym, unfortunately, we've had a lot of high school kids that have had ACLs. And we're kind of that bridge between, okay, they're released from PT and the PT has quote unquote cleared them to go back to sport, but either the child themselves or the parents recognize, like, no, we're not ready for this. We haven't really had a, a strong strength training routine. Uh, we haven't done plyometrics. We haven't sprinted, jumped. Anyway, when we're talking about return to play, when we're talking about rehab, it's about outcomes. So just because you're at six months and the piece of paper says, oh yeah, you should be ready to go back and play. That doesn't mean you're ready to go back and play. We have kids that are coming back. They've had poor therapy uh, or they've been kind of misguided during the process. They're 12, 15. We've had some as many as 18 months post ACL that shouldn't be on a soccer field. It's mind blowing. Okay. But here's the thing. This is why we can't hang our hat on time-based metrics. Are they ready? Yes or no? So I always try and explain to clients, to athletes, look, it takes how long it takes. So man, if you do all the things right and you know you crush your rehab and you're getting objective data fed back to you and you can say, oh yeah, I'm less than a 10% asymmetry side to side, whatever metrics you're looking at, you have a reason to, to clearly say, yes, this person's ready to go back and play sport. Hey, that's great. If that's six months, nine months, 12 months, great. By all means, go for it. But we can't just hang our hat on this idea of, oh, it's been six months, they should be ready to go. Because some people are and some people aren't. So, man, yeah, it would be great if I could write a program and say, yeah, in four weeks, we're gonna have this adaptation. Perfect. Or at Nine months, 12 months, you're going to be ready to go back and play high-level soccer. Great. I'd love to have that. It would make my life infinitely easier. But it doesn't work like that. And I see this time and again. When I'm writing programs for gen pop clients, normal humans like you and me, man, a lot of times programs and the adaptations don't occur in four weeks. It just doesn't happen. Sometimes it takes six. Sometimes it's eight. Sometimes it's 12. So with a lot of my gen pop people, I've had to tease these programs out. I've had to make them longer, stretch them out, give them more time to accommodate and to adapt. On the flip side of that, a lot of my pros figure stuff out incredibly quickly. Like a four-week training cycle, they're bored by like week three because it's so easy. They pick things up so naturally. So sometimes I have to move things a little bit faster for them. But just respect the fact when we're talking about adaptation, Adaptation is outcome-based, not time-based.
All right, my friend, that does it. 13 plus one, so really 14 practical programming and coaching tips. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, man, if you want the TLDR, here it is. Number one, make all your variables congruent. If you're chasing metabolic adaptations, write a metabolic program. If you're chasing neural adaptations, write a neural program. Don't try and mix the two because you'll be disappointed with the results. Number two, do you really need traditional resets? Maybe, maybe not. But if you can get it in a dynamic or a movement fashion and get the same kind of results, I go there every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Number three, do you need ground-based or movement-based warm-ups? A lot of times it depends on the client standing in front of you. Remember, your older populations, your beat-up people, probably going to benefit from the ground-based stuff. A lot of your young and developing athletes, make sure you're getting the movement-based warm-ups in there. They need it for the mobility, but they really need it for like the rhythm, the coordination, and the bounce. Number four, remember, easier to write a program for somebody else than it is for yourself. When in doubt, have a coach write a program for you because not only will you probably get better results, but you also learn something in the process. If you're going to go at yourself, find somebody to help audit you and keep you honest. Number five, do the things that either you or they suck at. Rate limiters are a real thing, and a lot of times just finding that low-hanging fruit, maybe it's with some strength training, maybe it's with some aerobic development, when you fill in those little gaps, when you take away those rate limiters, a lot of times success skyrockets. Number six, very subtly, thank you so much, Eric Cressy. Elite athletes do not equal elite lifters. Just because they're great on a field quarter pitch doesn't mean they're going to move great or have crazy high outputs in a weight room environment. Know that, respect that, and meet them where they are. Number seven, stop trying to balance your presses, pulls, squats, hinges, all that structural balance as we know it is a myth. Instead, get clear. What's your goal? Once you know your goal, then create a program that's going to help address the specific movement limitations that you or they have. Number eight, work to balance your workload across the week. Don't come in on Monday, smash yourself, and hope that it's going to carry through the rest of the week. Instead, I'd rather have three pretty good workouts than one amazing one on Monday. But number nine, on the flip side of that, if I only get you one day a week, we're going to make that one day a week great. So something is always better than nothing. When you're writing a program, when you're coaching people, get them in as often with you as possible, even if that often as possible is only once a week. Number 10, strengthen muscles and load movements. Thank you, Mike Reinold. Isolation work has a place. We're never going to make somebody perfectly symmetrical, but if we can better manage asymmetries, then chances are our clients and our athletes are going to move and feel and perform better as a result. Number 11, speed training is speed training, not conditioning. Again, line up those neural ends of the spectrum. Run fast and rest long for maximal results. Number 12, when in doubt, slow it down. If you got clients, athletes struggling to squat, hinge, lunge, push up, slow it down. Put them on a tempo. Make them do static or iso holds. It will immediately clean things up and it'll help them better understand the way to perform the movement and what they should be feeling. 13, strive to blend the objective with the subjective, right? You got to marry the two. Everybody has their own ratio that works best. That's fine but you can't ignore either side of the spectrum. Blend objective with subjective. Last but not least, 14, adaptation is outcome-based, not time-based. Just because the rehab protocol says six weeks or six months, whatever the case may be, not necessarily true. You gotta evaluate the individual. Where are they at? How are they responding? Okay, sometimes an adaptation takes four weeks, sometimes it takes eight. Sometimes return to play takes six months. Sometimes it takes a year, right? Just know and respect the fact that physiology works at its own pace and adaptation should be an outcome-based metric, not time-based. So my friend, I realized that was a lot, probably a little bit longer show uh, than usual, just because it's me talking about things I'm excited about, things I'm passionate about. And, you know, I might have a few tangents here and there, but I hope overall that this show has 
provided value for you. It's hopefully made you think about some things with regards to your programming and coaching that will ultimately help you get better results with the clients and athletes that you work with. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I have one small favor to ask. If you got something out of this, please share this with a friend, uh, family member, colleague, fellow athlete, anybody that could benefit from hearing the messages that we talked about today, please share this with them just to help spread the word. I'm always trying to get this show out there to more and more people. I want to make a big impact in our industry, and it really starts with people like you. So if you can help me spread the word, it would be very much appreciated. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you, and we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.